A very warm welcome to a new episode of the UPSC Prep Decoded, a podcast by the Abhyankar's IS for UPSC aspirants so that you can study on the go. This is our 30th episode and I am your host Shreya. In this episode of In Conversation With, we are conversing with Malaika Vaz. Malaika is a 24-year-old National Geographic explorer, a TV presenter and a wildlife filmmaker focused on telling stories of the human-wildlife interface and investigating illegal marine trafficking. As a Nat Geo explorer, Malaika created a three-part film series on community-led big cat conservation in India titled Living with Predators. Malaika is also a PADI dive master, a Cessna pilot, a competitive windsurfer and an endurance horse rider. She is interested in creating policy impact in the field of wildlife conservation. In July 2020, she was nominated for the 2020 Panda Award, also known as the Green Oscars, for a documentary on wildlife trafficking produced by her production house, Untamed Planet Films. Today, she talks to us on community efforts in wildlife conservation. Welcome to this episode, Malaika. We are so excited to have you speak with us. I'm really happy to be here today and to talk to everyone. Thank you so much for that introduction. So just to start off, could you tell us how you got into wildlife filmmaking? To tell you a little bit about why I decided to get into wildlife filmmaking, I think I need to go back a little bit to my roots. So I grew up in Goa. I spent a lot of time doing different kinds of adventures. And I was a competitive windsurfer. I managed to travel to seven continents on these expeditions. But I realized very soon that, you know, I was going on all of these adventures. But what was the point of it? What was the purpose? I mean, in my opinion, there has to always be a purpose behind everything you you do. You have to be very intentional about everything you do. So when I was 16 years old, I moved to Maharashtra. I was living in a small um, remote area and I was going to boarding school there. And I realized that many women in India don't get access to the same opportunities as I do. They don't get access to the outdoors to begin with because the outdoors for the longest time has been considered a very masculine space. We think of men when we think of mountaineers. We think of men when we think of scuba divers. And that really needs to change. So I started a nonprofit called Kriya, which works with women who are victims of violence, survivors of violence, and children from you know, criminally labeled tribal communities and vulnerable and marginalized communities. So along with a couple of other team members, we ran this program where we would train these young people um, in adventure sport. We would t- train them how to cycle, how to hike mountains, how to swim, um, how to ride horses. Um, and at the end of a one-year-long training program, we took them to the Himalayas on different expeditions. And what I realized was that when these young women from Maharashtra, who really had never stepped outside of their comfort zone, had never worn anything but a sari in their life, um, were climbing mountains in Ladakh, when they came back, they had this amazing confidence and this amazing, you know, sense of purpose. And I think it's the natural world that also does that, right? And I began thinking about my career at 18, I realized that, you know, I wanted to do something that could connect people to the natural world. And you obviously can't take everyone to the Himalayas. You can't make everyone an adventure athlete. But what you can do is you can get people to fall in love with the natural world and realize what challenges the natural world faces. And documentary filmmaking for me was exactly that. 
when I grew up watching these documentaries, I always realized, you know, the natural world, um, forests around us, the oceans around us are really beautiful. Um, but when I started traveling in India, I realized that it's not just about the beauty of it. It's not just about how incredibly pristine they are. If you look at India's forests today, they are incredibly threatened. We have different threats ranging from the illegal wildlife trafficking industry that goes from India to many other countries. We have threats like development that sometimes isn't sustainable or well calculated. We have other threats as well. But when you watch television, you don't often see that. And when I realized that there was this gap between what was happening on the ground and the gap and what was happening in reality on television, um, I realized that I really wanted to make documentaries that talk about the connection between people and the natural world and the threats to the natural world and conservation solutions. That is incredible to hear, Malaika. Your transition from doing something that you love to doing the same thing in a way that benefits people and our environment by raising awareness is just phenomenal and uh, honestly inspiring. Moving on. In your opinion, how has India fared in conservation? Through your experiences in wildlife filmmaking globally, how do you compare it to other countries or say the Western world? I would say that in terms of the broader context, India has actually done a remarkable job with that. I mean, we come from a long history of, you know, being at the very forefront and leading our own movements as opposed to having outsiders telling us. But in the recent past, if you've noticed, um, with colonialism, I mean, like the baggage of colonialism has resulted in many people thinking that conservation is a white man's business or conservation is something that Americans come in and do in India. But if you look at the history, you've seen that local communities like the Bishnoi community in Rajasthan have been protecting animals ever since, you know, like the last 300 to 500 years. And that, that goes really, really far back. And when you think about that, you realize that every single one of us as Indians has that in our blood. We have protecting the natural world in our blood. And regardless of whether you are a scientist or an IS officer or a filmmaker or a writer or a teacher, you have to find some way to integrate that into the work that you do in, um, on a, an everyday basis. Yes, Malaika. That is so true when you say that the protection of the environment and conservation is something that is in our blood as Indians. I guess the only thing we need to do is actually go back to our roots and revisit our culture and we will find all the answers we need right there. How about you give us an interesting example of successful community conservation to drive the point home? So I'd like to give you an example of one place um, that I recently saw this community-based conservation in. It was in Rajasthan. I was filming for a television series um, for National Geographic. It's a series about how communities are leading the conservation efforts of big cats in India. So Asiatic lions, leopards, and tigers. Um, there is a community called the Mogia community. And the Mogia community has been a poaching community for you know, decades and decades. And they've had a long history of actually going into the forest and extracting resources such as timber, such as also tigers and other wildlife. Um, and especially because this community has been really, really involved in the tiger poaching trade, it was very difficult to get them out of that and find them, you know, alternatives that would be as viable given that tiger poaching can generate so much income for a poor family. But there is an organi organization that I would recommend everyone to, you know, check out. It's called Tiger Watch. Uh, Tiger Watch is based in Ranthambore. And basically what they do is they go in there 
and they work with the next generation. So they work with the young children who are from these communities and they teach them how to, you know, read, write, do all of the basic educational aspects of it, but they also teach them how to fall in love with tigers, how to understand the ecology of tigers, how to understand the behavioral science of tigers. And what's remarkable is that when these children grow up, they are much more likely to, you know, go to Jaipur, for example, and pursue, you know, work, meaningful work opportunities as opposed to being hunters. And I think to me, that example of working with the next generation in a community and transforming that community over the course of, you know, say 20 to 30 years, because conservation is not a short-term process, it is a long-term process. So I think that represents success to me. Right, Malaika. So next question, when we talk about involving communities, how do we make sure they benefit from it? When you're looking at wildlife conservation from a community, from like a participatory approach, so for scientists, for filmmakers, for conservationists working in the space, we're constantly trying to figure out how we can look after the needs of the communities. Like for example, right now, um, a lot of communities in India are dependent on ecotourism as a form of revenue. And with the COVID-19 pandemic, that's completely shut off, right? So they don't really have any money coming in. Now the tourists aren't going to places like Bandavgarh, Tadova, Ranthambore, uh, Kaziranga National Park. So what we have to do is figure out ways to innovate, figure out ways to find them, you know, economic opportunities in these times so that they are not forced to go back to their more primitive ways of hunting and forest gathering and also trafficking of wildlife and also to ensure that they have you know enough income to sustain themselves and their families i realized that without the support and the active participation of local communities conservation can't really function in the most effective way so um i, I know you guys would be doing different things during your career but i think that one of the most important aspects is regardless of whether you're working in the social sector or whether you're working in politics or whether you're working in um, the wildlife conservation sector is that you have to involve local communities first you need to ask them about what they would like to get out of it because very often we go there with our you know beliefs about what a community wants but very often a needs assessment can be really really helpful speaking to the communities in a way that is really open-ended and where you ask them you know fully about what they would like to get from this and then working backwards to see how that can connect to the conservation dots so that you can actively protect wildlife now our last question could you talk about a very pertinent topic that is human-animal conflict? What are the measures that the government of India is implementing and what is the difference between the Indian model vis-a-vis -vis the model of some other countries? That's a really interesting conversation to have because I think that even in the beginning I mentioned India has actually done a remarkable job with protecting our wildlife. I mean, if you look at America, for example, they don't really have much wildlife left. I mean, to be honest, they've killed off all of their larger mammals, all of their, you know, big predators that are out there. They have these gun laws that are also, also extend towards wildlife, unfortunately. Whereas in India, um, going back to our culture, we've managed to, and going back to also Indira Gandhi's rule, I think that's one uh, thing that she did that was really positive, was having this uh, protected area network and ensuring that tiger conservation was prioritized. So, in terms of mitigating human wildlife conflict in India, the Indian government has done some really, really important things. Like, for example, um, in areas where, you know, communities have had a lot of conflict with uh, wildlife, they have relocated those communities. This is obviously a very contrary 
controversial thing because in some situations, I believe that relocation is completely not done because those communities have lived there and you can't just relocate an entire community and upend their lives. But in many situations, these communities have had to deal with, you know, uh, different kinds of challenges in the field. They've had to, you know, constantly go out there and seek even the most basic um, resources but when you can relocate them to a place where they can get better work opportunities a school is more accessible medical care is more accessible their families can get more you know better incomes from working in different kinds of sectors i think in that situation you're not only helping the communities who no longer have to deal with say a tiger killing their family or have to deal with going into the forest every single day and having that threat to their life but you're also helping the wildlife because very often I mean, I wouldn't say that a frog would need huge amounts of land, but tigers, for example, or lions or leopards, big cats, um, or elephants, for example, these are species that require vast tracts of land. And if we are to protect them in India, we really need to ensure that we, you know, at least have the givingness and the uh, fullness of conservation efforts that we actually allocate land for these animals. There's no two ways about it. We have to ensure that we are good stewards of the planet. Um, but even in situations, there are situations where people and animals have to live next to each other. And what I realized is that it's not just the government that does a lot of things, but also the communities themselves. Like, for example, in Assam, I realized that I've uh, seen firsthand, actually, in places where there's a lot of conflict with elephants. People um, use this really simple but innovative technique where they have these fences around their houses and they add a mixture of cow dung and chili oil, um, like chilies uh, mixed with uh, a little bit of oil to this cow dung and they smear it all over the fences and the, and the elephants when they smell that um, can't stay close. It's not effective in some places but in many places it is effective. In Karnataka for example there's an organization called Wild Savior that does um, really good work with mobile technology. So if there's any instance of they manage to have like a rapid reporting network where everyone is notified about it so that they can actually take action and not have their crops raided by the elephants. But like I said earlier, I think the most important aspect of mitigating human wildlife conflict is ensuring that communities feel heard, right? Ensuring that they feel like their needs are respected. So what do you do in a situation where someone loses a, ca a cow to a tiger attack? What do you do in the situation where a big cat or an elephant tramples over someone's house or kills a family member? Those are situations that you don't really want to be in, but for the forest department, very often they are in that situation. And I think one of the most important things is kind of going in there as the forest department and providing them with urgent recompensation for their losses. Obviously you cannot recompensate the loss of a life, but very often um, that makes a huge difference just for the people in these areas to realize that the forest department is there to look after their needs as well. So I think there are different strategies of dealing with human wildlife uh, conflict from, you know, allocating land to working with different kinds of technology. And these are innovations that are constantly at place. So I think it's a really exciting space right now. This has been a wonderful session, Malaika. You have elucidated every issue with real life examples from your rich experience in this field. We actually received a number of case study pointers that will no doubt be useful for UPSC aspirants in their answer writing. And going beyond that, you have increased the scope of our understanding on some very crucial wildlife related issues. So thank you very, very much for doing this. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I think that for every single one of you that's listening, I would just say that you matter and your work will create such an impact in the years ahead. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Dear listeners, your inputs, feedbacks, suggestions, and most importantly, your questions are of importance to us. Do send them in and we will try our best to address them.
If you like this episode, please show us some love by hitting the like button. Download the episode to access your favorite episodes anytime, anywhere. We are now available on major streaming platforms: Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify. We also have a Facebook page, an Instagram handle, and a Twitter handle, all by the name of Abhyankar's IAS. Please do visit our website, and to get in touch with us, our email ID is info at abhyankarias dot com. So that's it for today, folks. See you in a week's time. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay wise, and have a great day.